You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Louis Pilfold, creator of the Gleam programming language. We talk about Gleam, which compiles to both Erlang's Beam virtual machine as well as the JavaScript, in addition to package management, type checking implementations and compilers, and some other topics. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com slash jobs. And now, Gleam. All right, Louis, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You have created the Gleam programming language. For those who aren't familiar with it, uh, you want to just give a quick sort of summary of what Gleam is? Sure. So... Gleam is sort of the result of my being in love with both the Erlang family of languages and also the ML family of languages, which, you know, you're very familiar with, with Elm and Rock and all that sort of stuff. So I probably don't need to convince you that, you know, Elm is good. (laughs) We're all probably in agreement here. (laughs) No argument here. (laughs) Every time I'm writing one of the ML languages, I kind of miss Erlang and I kind of miss Elixir. I miss all the actors and I miss all the fault tolerance and currency, all this cool stuff. And then exactly the same way the other way around, like when I'm using Erlang, I really wish the compiler would help me here. I spent the last five years or so, oof, a bit more than that now, trying to mash them together into something that's useful. Yeah, it's going pretty well. People are starting to use it, which is quite exciting. Oh, very cool. Where are people using it? The first one was a chap called Peter Saxon. He started his own little startup, which is why Combinator funded to try and replace email. And it was 100% Gleam. Wow. Um, Which is really exciting. And then they went bankrupt. (laughs) Uh, Well, unfortunately, that's a common occurrence in the startup world. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's not Gleam's fault, but I've not verified that. (laughs) Imagine just asking someone, do you think that the reason your company went bankrupt was because of my programming language? Just (laughs) yes or no. (laughs) Is this my fault? Are we still friends? So I don't think anyone's doing it quite as dramatically as them. Every now and again, I'd someone message me like, hey, we've just done... We've just done one feature and the core of it's in Gleam. I was like, that's really cool. And people seem to get a, li- a little braver with each step. And my stuff's, in, my stuff's in Gleam, but I don't think anyone finds that particularly exciting. You know, if it wasn't something <laughs> else, I think they'd find it a bit weird. Yeah, hopefully, like, you like it enough to, to want to use it yourself. That, that's. Uh... <laughs> I think there's, like, a real danger of a lot of language designers not actually using their language very much. Like, I remember... Hmm. The Ruby guy talking about how he's not a Ruby program, he's a C programmer. Matt's interesting. Yeah. And like, I spent a lot of time writing Rust for Gleam because the compiler's written in Rust. And every now, every now and again, I'm like, oh, gosh, I should probably write some of that, that thing that I've made. <laughs> Is that a goal of yours, to self-host the compiler, like rewrite the compiler in Gleam? People seem to be really interested in this lately. Like, I keep getting asked if it... I think it's because it looks dangerously useful now. And so like, oh, obviously, you've got to, you know, you've got to prove that it's good by uh-huh. self-hosting. But I don't think it's particularly worthwhile like it would probably take me a couple years to get to the same point and that's like a couple years i could have just spent on something else it runs on the erlang runtime which is amazing and it's really particularly for network services and databases and message queues and this sort of stuff but i wouldn't say excel excels for command line tools well rust is really good at that you know it's really fast really easy to distribute if you have to boot the virtual machine and like distribute all the bytecode every time oh yeah i didn't wouldn't, think that. wouldn't be as nice yeah that's a good point. I mean, just sort of an ego thing, I think, really. <laughs> yeah, I get asked the same question about Rock, although I have a different reasoning, which is that 
Rock doesn't run on a VM, so you could distribution-wise, it would be fine. It's more just that like I'm performance obsessed, and I don't I don't want to give up even the whatever the delta is between <laughs> Rock and what we could get in Rust. I don't want to give up. <laughs> I don't know. I, I saw some of those benchmarks that look quite impressive. I feel like you could probably get quite close. I'm sure we could get close, but there are some things that we're doing. Like we're going in on like you know arena allocation and stuff like that, and some of that stuff you can do in certain contexts in Rock, but not everywhere. If we did rewrite everything in Rock, it would end up, I don't know. I haven't really put much thought into it because I'm like, no, we're just, we're going to commit to the whole whole compiler being in Rust forever. <laughs> That's the plan. A similar sort of thing with Gleam, but the main difference is that we haven't, you know, we're not doing a root allocation. We're not doing anything clever, really. The Gleam compiler that's written in Rust sort of started initially being going, Rust seems like the right language. I don't know Rust. Let's see how this goes. And it was absolutely dreadful the first time because it was like a straight port from the Erlang one. And then it slowly got better and better and better. But I I, it's not particularly clever or efficient anyway. But Rust is really good. So it's still really fast. Like <laughs> me, me being a fool with, with Rust is still much faster than me being pretty good at Erlang. There's an interesting term that I've heard for like different levels of performance optimization. I saw this. It was a video by Casey Muratori. And he basically talked about the difference between what he called non-pessimization and optimization. And the difference being non-pessimization, he was talking about it more in the context of techniques, like just sort of knowing a basic way to write something that'll be pretty fast. And then the difference between that, which he was calling non-pessimization and optimization is optimizations where you measure and you're like actually doing timings and like, okay, I found a hot spot here. I'm going to take some steps to resolve this thing. Non-pessimization is like, you're not timing anything. You're just like, I'm pretty sure this is going to be the best way to write this thing. And Rust, I guess, is kind of, or like C or C++, is, I guess, sort of a part of that where, like, for example, if you had a virtual machine as part of your compiler, which a lot of compilers do, I mean, like, all the Java ones do, all the JavaScript ones do, there's just some baseline overhead, like you were saying, to running that. Like, you have to spin up the VM, there's, you know, probably some JIT going on, whereas, like, Rust, C, C++, they don't have any of that. You get a lot of mileage out of just not having to pay the like the VM costs in, in the compiler itself. It's sort of a complexity cost or like an ability to approach it cost. So like I had to learn Rust, which was quite humbling in a lot of ways. Like <laughs> yeah. I, I try and I try and learn a new I used to try and learn a new language or two or three every year or something. They're all, you know, they're all functional, garbage collected programming languages. And it's all pretty much the same. You've got to learn where the different pieces are with a few quirks, but like you can stumble through it. And going to Rust, I just felt like a fool. I felt like I was learning programming again because I was like, I can't get it to compile. <laughs> I'm trying to do something so simple and it doesn't work. And I get why now, but for the life of me, no one could explain it to me at the time. And this was a few years ago, so I think I think they've done a lot of work on documentation and compiler errors, but gosh, it was hard. But since then, I've just not had to think about a lot of stuff. I had a very similar experience where like Rock was the first substantial Rust project I did. There was some time back in like, it's like five years ago where I, I want to say Rage rewrote half of Elm test in Rust because I was so frustrated about some Node.js thing or other. I was like, that does it. I'm going to just rewrite this whole thing in Rust and not have to deal with Node anymore. And I got like, as a lot of projects do, I got like 60% of the way done. And then I was just like, do I really want to take this over the finish line? I was like, no. But actually now somebody somebody did rewrite Elm Test and Rust and like actually got it like feature complete, which is really cool. I remember having that experience then and even more so after I got into like a project that I was like really committed to of, yeah, just like, I am stuck. I don't know how to make the compiler do what, I don't know about you, but for me, the biggest 
thing that got me unblocked was learning about clone just like slap a clone on it very often that solves the problem at the expense of performance but then like later on there's a lot of commits now in the, in the rock compiler that are like take out this clone take out that clone because like oh like we know how to like do that now <laughs> but like back when whatever that code was was originally written it was just like i can't figure out how to get the borrow checker to leave me alone so i'm just going to clone this thing and move on with my life that's my tip for any rust aspiring rust programmer clone things oh my gosh a program that runs slowly is much faster than a program that very quickly does not compile <laughs> yeah and i think there's also an element of learning curve where like trying to learn everything all at once is just a lot harder than being unblocked and then like just getting some more patterns into your brain to pattern match on to like wrap your head around things better i think that's easier than trying to just like learn it 100 percent from the well how many people actually know rust 100 percent? i mean there's like i think i don't want to like make this like a strong claim or anything but my guess is the only people who completely know rust are compiler authors on rust maybe you could to some extent make that argument for any programming language like there's some super esoteric detail but like maybe even like 99% for rust i mean like there's there's definitely even today like i now i feel very comfortable in rust it still happens occasionally that i will get a lifetime error and i don't understand why and i just look at it and i'm like okay i know what this lifetime is and like i'm like before i would just stare at them and i'd just be like what does this mean i don't understand and now i'm like i understand what it's telling me i just i disagree you know, I'm like, I don't think that should be like, <laughs> I, I, I don't see why the compilers come to a different conclusion than I did. And I'll like trace back and be like, okay, well, this has a lifetime of this and this has a lifetime of that. And like, this should be freed here and this should run out here. So why though? But that's very rare now. I mean, that's like less than once a month, I think, whereas it used to be like more than once an hour, like <laughs> that I would get totally stuck on something when I was starting out. I'm still very much in the like, well, just slap clone on it and move on. <laughs> At some point, someone's going to complain about the Glim compiler performance, but it hasn't come out yet. The majority of the time that when we compile stuff is spent in the Erlang compiler because we like compile to Erlang and then we invoke the Erlang compiler. Oh, I don't know what Erlang has. Oh, so like Erlang compilers in, in terms of like parsing and stuff. We compile to to Erlang and then we invoke a little tiny little Erlang program run which runs the Erlang compiler on multiple threads. So even with that, it's much faster. Like the is the Glean compiler is much faster. Okay, so I didn't know this about. I assumed that Erlang was an interpreter. So, but it actually compiles to bytecode. Yeah, there is an interpreter which I think is used in the REPL, but nowhere else. And anytime you actually run it, run it, you compile it into a bytecode, and that gets loaded to the virtual machine. Okay, cool. Got it. So, <laughs> oh, and there's a JIT now as well. So you know, there's an extra, an extra compile step. So the Erlang compiler for you is like what LLVM is for Rock, which is that's where <laughs> the Rock compiler spends most of its time. But we do have a, a cheat, which is that since we're going to machine code, we actually have some development backends that go straight to machine code and, and are astronomically faster. Yeah, none of those are at feature parity with LLVM yet. I guess we've also got the JavaScript backend. Like if you want to run Gleam really fast, you can, oh, yeah. you can just look that way. Because JavaScript passes and runs pretty quick. Yeah, I saw an announcement about that recently. So uh, yeah, tell me more about that. I don't know of many programming languages that start off compiling to Erlang and then end up also compiling to JavaScript. That's That seems like a pretty rare combination. We were desperately jealous of the JavaScript concurrency model. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> It's just that Erlang's wonderful, but like it only really works in certain places. Like it's designed to be run on a server, and they kind of want you to run it for a long time. The virtual boots pretty quickly. It's no JVM, but like 
it's not great and you can't ship it around very quickly. And I want to do things like run Gleam on a mobile phone or in a cloud function or on like a CDN somewhere or any other silly, or in a browser, that's the really obvious one, you know, all, all these other places. And like JavaScript is the new universal language. Like if it has a CPU, it can probably run JavaScript. So I just wanted to like get in that direction. And that, it was sort of a more long-term project, but um, Peter Saxton, the guy who the, who did that, did that startup, wanted it for some reason. I can't remember what he was trying to build. Oh, interesting. And so he's like, I've made half of a uh, JavaScript backend. And I was like, oh, okay. Cool. Let's let's just finish this off and, and and get it working. And I was sort of expecting it to be just a little value add, like oh, you probably write all your stuff on Gleam backend, but then maybe you want to have a Lambda function or something in in Gleam.js. But people are really going for it. Like there's a bunch of people doing all sorts of front endy things in Gleam, which I'm quite surprised by. Cool. I'm very curious. You mentioned, you know, jokingly, of course, uh, like the threading model, the concurrency model. So obviously, like in Erlang, you can have actual, you know, multi-threading using lots of different cores. In JavaScript, you kind of got like single-threaded and then like async is about it. So how do you deal with like standard library across those two backends? One of the sort of design goals of Gleam is that interrupt with Elixir and Erlang and all the other big languages is really good, which is part frustration from... So Elixir is a wonderful language, but it has this macro system, which is fantastic but you can't use it very easily from outside of Elixir, or rather you can't use it from outside of Elixir. So anything, all these libraries that use the macro system, you can only use in Elixir and you can't use from Erlang. It's kind of hard to like pull Elixir libraries into your project because like the standard library and the compiler need to be in special places on your machine. You've got to manage it with the OS package manager. And this just makes me really sad because there's loads of really amazing stuff in, in Elixir that I can't use in Erlang. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to make something that doesn't have this problem. And so the whole focus is on like that standard library is a hex package and, you know, you can distribute everything. You don't need the compiler to use Gleam packages from Elixir and Erlang. Anyway, the point of that is the concurrency model in Gleam isn't part of the core language. It works entirely by the FFI. And so that means when we're on JavaScript, we have the JavaScript concurrency model. We still have that principle of like, we want to have the best possible FFI in both directions, like whether you're calling JavaScript or JavaScript calling you. We just sort of say, no, we're not Erlang here, we're JavaScript. That's okay. And then just the way you write programs changes a bit. But you still get all of the like the value level stuff that you'd get with Gleam normally. So it becomes a lot more ML and a lot less Erlang. So the interop story is like you have a sort of target, and the target might be Elixir or Erlang or whatever, or it might be JavaScript. And since the standard library doesn't assume any of that stuff, then yeah, you, you can be sort of portable across those. So there's nothing concurrency related in the standard library, really. We just give you like all the usual data structures you'd expect, which is sort of what you get in like most, I think, if you well, the, the commonly used bit. And then you might pull in some additional libraries and tooling in order to get like fancy, I don't know, additional multi-threaded nonsense. It's interesting. So, I mean, Rock takes a similar approach in the sense that, like, the standard library in Rock is also all data structures, and there's no, there's no even effects at, at all in the standard library. Let I think we've anything. got print. I think that might be it. Yeah, we don't even have that. It's <laughs> just absolutely nothing. It's <laughs> all pure, <laughs> pure functions and data structures. I mean, there are some like language primitives that you can use for like debugging and stuff. But yeah, I mean, part of the reason for that is that like Rock's designed to target like really unknown systems. So it, it might be that like you're actually running your Rock program on like microcontroller or something that actually does not have a standard out <laughs> one thing i've noticed since like making that decision years ago i've seen people mention this on like hacker news or stuff like that where they will say things like 
I really want a standard library with batteries included. And when they say batteries included, they mean things like file IO and all the stuff that you might perhaps expect from like a Python. And of course, the counterpoint to that is like, well, what batteries make sense depend in large part on like what use cases you're targeting. And the broader the use cases you're targeting, the more those batteries are just not going to work in different environments. And then you can get yourself into deep trouble in terms of like the having dependencies that just make certain packages just completely not work in some contexts, maybe without even meaning to or without even getting a big benefit out of it. Like I could imagine in Gleam's case, if somebody were to write a really popular package and they just happen to throw in a little bit of Erlang concurrency and now all of a sudden it can't be used in any of the JS backend stuff. I think that idea of a batteries included standard library or whatever is is possibly compensating for the fact that they've got rubbish package management. So if I look at the languages <laughs> that claim that, like Python and C++ with Boost, they're just such a pain for dependencies to. In Gleam, the standard library is absolutely tiny, but then we've got, here's the Erlang at like extra library, and here's the JavaScript extra library that has all the stuff you want. And like, here's loads of little packages. No one's complained about that. I mean, people still want the packages to be owned by me specifically, rather than running their own things for some reason. They want it in the, like, the Gleam org, um, org the Gleam Lang organization. So maybe there's a second problem there, but no one's complained about it. I'm going to be slightly mean about Python. I think I think Python's actually pretty good, but I've, I've started doing a load of work in Python in the last year. And that whole like batteries included standard library for me just sounds like bit rot included standard library. Oh, like there's just loads of bits in the, in the standard library. I'm like, this isn't very good. And like, oh yeah, we don't use that anymore. We'll use this replacement. It's like, but it's still here. <laughs> you can't replace it. It's just there forever. Oh, I see. So it's like there's a battery included, but everybody sort of knows not to use that that one and to use something. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Or like it's a technology that was popular when the standard library was made, but there isn't actually any reason to use it anymore. I see. And then because it's part of the standard library, you can't really take it out without making a huge breaking change. And yeah, it's just there. Yeah. That's another interesting aspect of batteries included that doesn't get discussed a lot is like, what does that imply for evolving code over time? Because if you have fewer things in the standard library, but a really nice package management solution, then the ecosystem can sort of gradually and incrementally evolve itself where older packages use older versions of things. And then newer packages maybe find out about newer things that come out. But like you said, there's a bit of a, there's a cultural component to that in the sense of if it's in the standard library and I'm new to the language, I'm going to assume that I should use the thing in the standard library. But if there's nothing there, I might feel in the short term, inconvenience, like, oh, I wish this battery were included. But maybe that's actually a nicer experience than being like, oh, this battery is included, I use it. And then everyone's like, why did you use that? Why didn't you use the good one that everybody knows about? I was like, well, I assumed this was the good one. It's just the standard. So maybe it's actually better for me in some sense, or, or I get less of a painful experience if I'm just like, well, yes, it's inconvenient that it's not there. But then at least I turn around and ask the community, what should I use for this, which is actually the question I want to be asking anyway. I think it, that continues to be the problem of like the package management system needs to be better. So I think in Gleam, in Gleam so Gleam, you know, the whole stand is on the shoulder of the giants thing. We're using the, we're using a really good version resolving algorithm, which is implemented by, I think some of the cargo team, they were like experimenting with a new one. So, so the dark people invented it, cargo implemented it, and I took it and put it in Gleam. So it's like amazing all this work that I just didn't have to do. And the, the backend for the package management system is the, is Hex, the standard Erlang one, which is made by the Elixir folks. So I'm taking all these like world-class pieces and putting it together. And I think because of that, we've built pretty quickly a package management system, which 
is just really good. Like it's as good as any any of the languages I've come across. And that really alleviates a lot of that problem for like, oh, it's it's not the standard library, but I think we can still do better. Like I think this is like such a bare minimum. I think there's like there's still little shiny bits in other ecosystems I want to steal. And like one one for example will be Google. Have you come across that in the Haskell world? Google's so cool. You just like you go to a search engine sort of page and you type in the type signature of a function that you wish existed and it goes here, it belongs in this package. You can just install it. That's amazing. That's right. so cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> so like that and then like searching based upon names that you think it might be, but isn't the actual name. So in Rust, you can, I'm trying to give a good example, but in Rust, you can have a function named allocate, but you might be searching for malloc because you're used to that a different language. And you, you can annotate it in the source code saying, well, some people might call this app, app malloc, some people might call it this, some people might call it that. And when you search, it finds all of them. It's like, that's such a cool idea. It's so all of these like discovery things. And then it, even integrate it into like language server protocol. So you can like, if you type it, it doesn't exist, then it can suggest things for you. This can really sort of like blur the line between what comes with the language and like what is out there for you to use. I was thinking about what are the big sort of game changer innovations that have happened in software in the last like quarter century, let's say, you know, since the 1990s and package managers seem to me like the the big one. I mean, that's like the the big game changer. IDEs that we use still look pretty much the same as they did in the 90s, like the programming languages on like Java, C++, C, JavaScript, all of them, you know, were in are around in the 1990s, Python 1990s, Ruby 1990s. We've been very slowly getting rid of null. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I don't think we've come far enough on that that we can yet claim that that's like been a, a huge change. But at least, yeah, it's on its way out <laughs> or decrease in usage. But yeah, but package managers, I mean, that's just such a huge game changer in terms of like how it used to be in the 90s, like trying to get shared code and reuse code that other people had written was just totally different level. I find it interesting that there are certain implications to that change that don't seem to be discussed very much relative to how big the impact is. And I think it's kind of revealing about how beneficial package management is. So one example of this would be security. All the time, we all run tons and tons of code we have not even glanced at that <laughs> other people wrote. And it's not like these are from super reputable sources where it's like, oh, I'm not going to bother auditing the entire JavaScript runtime because, you know, like, come on, like the, I trust the folks at Mozilla or Google or whatever, you know, a lot of eyes have been on it, blah, blah. It's like, I didn't even look up the name of the author of this package. I just looked at the description and it says that it does what I want. So I installed it. And now that's just part of my code base forever. And then he's let his email domain expire. Someone actually has registered it and taken over the package. Right. Yeah. All of these things can happen. I think it speaks to the incredible benefits that package managers bring that like these are considered like, yeah, well, you know, I mean, sometimes you just give remote code execution to, you know, some random strangers on the internet on your production boxes. And that's like, that's just the thing you do. But in exchange, I get have to write slightly less code. So, you know, <laughs> that's, that's not a terrible trade. And to be fair, sometimes it's a lot less code. I mean, it's not, you know. What proportion of your program do you think you personally have written? It's got a, what, a percent? Maybe. <laughs> right. Yeah. Single digits these days. Yeah. I mean, it used to be like, you know, if you were doing like C or C programming, you know, it was like you had the standard library and then go write your stuff and, you know, that's it. That's what do you mean packages? Or if you do an assembly, you have the processor. Yeah. You don't even have a standard library. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, the benefits have been really tremendous. 
And I've been thinking about this in the context of like, how can we minimize these downsides? How can we make it so that let's say that I depend on an untrusted package and, you know, that person turns out to be malicious. How can we limit the damage that those can do? And part of this is just like, I'm a little bit working backwards from like, periodically, I find myself in conversations with people who say like, like, why is, you know, functional programming a big deal? Why is like, why go all the way to pure functional programming? Why not just let little, little side effects in, you know, just, just like let them slip in here and there. And that's actually one of the answers is that like, you actually, I should add the caveat, if you don't have escape hatches. So this is not true of Haskell. Like in Haskell, like anyone, any package you depend on can slip an unsafe perform IO in there. And culturally, it's not supposed to be done. But if you're a malicious, malicious actor, you don't actually care about what's culturally acceptable. You're just like, what can I exploit? Whereas in contrast, something like Elm, you just, you can't do that. It would, it would change the type and then the code wouldn't compile anymore if you tried to slip a side effect into something that looked like it was pure. Gleams in the Haskell camp where we do have escape patches, but I think the escape patches are still like gets you, you know, even ignoring the cultural idea, it still gets you a lot further towards that, you know, that having that ability to have confidence in what the program is doing. And I think that's because you dramatically reduce the area that you have to search when auditing. When I've got a bug in Gleam, I can probably just look at the FFI, which is the, you know, the unchecked bit. You know, we could, you could imagine an automated auditing tool that could highlight, hey, well, here's, here's the bits that we think are most dangerous and everything else we can verify. There's lots of Gleam features that would be very implementable, really easy to implement, but I just can't work out why. Like, they're really cool. <laughs> I really want them, but I don't have an actual reason to do it yet. So I'm just sort of like, I'll just wait a little bit longer and someone's going to give me an answer. And I think you may have given me an answer one of them. I kind of want to add an FX system to Gleam because like we can do IO and we can do all these things. We're not like Elm, but it would be really easy to track those, you know, using like another layer on top of the type system. But I was like, and I was like oh yeah, great. Then I can say my function pure. And I'm like, why? <laughs> like it's not part of the type system. You can't do anything with it. But yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it, maybe it gets integrated into, you know, an auditing system. So security, yeah, security is definitely a reason to do it. Yeah, like Hex has a really nice Hex, the package manager for the Erlang world, has a really nice thing called Hex Diff, where you can say, "I'm upgrading from this package to this package. Show me the diff." And it's like it's like looking at a pull request on GitHub or something, and then you can just like read for the changes and decide what it is. Oh, like the the code changes, so it's a code yeah. level diff. Ah, oh, cool. Yeah, like uh, Elm package management has like a API diff, so it'll be like, "Okay, this is a breaking change because like this type changed from this to this." Yeah, I, I never thought about the yeah source source code diff makes sense too. Source diff, type diff, and then effects diff. Like between those two things, you've got a pretty good idea of what's going on. I think it sounds like you've already put some thought into like what an effects system might look like. Are you thinking like algebraic effects or just sort of classic you know Haskell style monadic effects or? So I don't think it'd be part of the type system. So like the one that has been most inspiration is OCaml, and I've not really looked into it. I just noticed that every now and again it will say this is a pure module. It's like, oh wow. And like it doesn't actually get in doesn't actually get used or integrated anywhere, as far as I can tell. I'm not a hugely experienced camera programmer, but it is there. That's interesting because it wouldn't be hard for me to work out if you're doing IO inside your clean program. If I could just maybe in the documentation annotate, you know, this function is pure, this function is pure, this function recurses, this fun this function can crash, this function uh, makes an assertion, this one uses FFI. Like that could possibly be useful, so long as you don't like make the UI too too busy with all this extra information. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to go that route, I, I would probably look into algebraic effects because it's sort of like a more, it seems to be the direction that people are going in when they want to integrate things in that way, if that makes sense. I think the sort of like the effect creation and the way they join together bit might be what I'm looking at. But so I've been looking at, I'm not sure how to pronounce the language, Coca, 
Have you oh, seen sure, that yeah. One? K-O-K-A, yeah. Yeah, I've been looking at that quite a lot, and like whenever I see like how they make the effects, I'm like, oh, that's amazing, really interesting. And then it gets to the, like, the effect handlers, and I'm like, oh, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand any of this. It looks amazing, but what's going on? So the two languages I know of... I'm oh, sorry, there's three. One is Coca, and then the two algebraic effects. So Coca does algebraic effects, Unison does algebraic effects, and I'm totally blanking on the name, but Jared Forsyth has been working on a language that also does algebraic effects. Maybe, and, and I, I know that like Unison definitely does the same like handlers as, as Coca does, so maybe it might be a little bit more approachable in Unison. Worth looking into. <laughs> Everyone keeps giving me really cool things to read about. I'm like, I've got no time. <laughs> <laughs> Languages are too big. Gleam is a very small language, and it's taken me five years so far. Yeah, I'm at four years with Rock, and we don't even have an 0.1 release yet. So <laughs> you're uh, you're you're further along than I am. I think that's just sure. because I'm a bit I'm a bit lackadaisical with with releases. You know, L- little and often. Why not? If it's broken, yeah. <laughs> we haven't broken anything in a long time, but I think there was quite a lot broken at the beginning. Oh yeah, I remember like when I was first working on the type checker, I just had a lot of false starts of trying to just get it working at all, and I remember very distinctly that the branch. I was so proud of myself. It was called Type Check 7 because it was the seventh time I had just completely given up and started over from scratch. Yes, I successfully inferred the type of an empty record is in fact an empty <laughs> record. And I was like, I was really proud of that. And then like within like two months, it was like Type Check 7 was totally broken in a million ways. <laughs> and it was like horribly. Yeah, it was a disaster. But now we actually have a working Type Checker. So that's that's good. That's awesome. Or was it like mine where you think it's working, but then there's just like more and more nuanced bugs we've been through a lot of iteration on we thought everything was working and then we found a bug and then we thought everything was working we found another bug so i wouldn't be surprised if there are still some bugs in there but like i mean we have like a lot of tests and a lot of different like i don't know about you but like in our case things having to do with recursive data structures are a big source of like long tail of bugs there was one where it was a little bit scary because it was a soundness bug and it, was, it came up in a language feature that Rock has and OCaml has, but I don't know of any other languages that have it. And we intentionally decided to do it a little bit differently than OCaml. So when there came up a soundness bug, it wasn't necessarily 100% clear that it was solvable because we didn't have any like precedent to point to of like, oh, this is, we'll just do what they did. But fortunately, it turned out to be solvable. And, and uh, IAS fixed it because IAS is awesome at fixing type checker bugs. We sort of reached a point where like the bugs are so obscure and strange people who report them aren't sure of their bugs or rather they just people just sort of go why doesn't this work what's going on and then it, and then we very slowly over the course of like several days of talking about it go oh actually i think you're right we had a, a phase of that and now it's 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 been a while since we've had one where it actually did turn out to be a compiler bug but actually i guess it's also been a while since we had a report where it was unclear what was happening because we've also tried to like if it's not a compiler bug try to like improve the error message or something or like improve documentation and try to make it clearer what's going on there i would have thought that a type checker is something where you kind of just put it together once and then you're done just like the parser i guess like parsing is i don't know about your experience but mine has been like i only ever think about parsing in general when like we need to add some new piece of syntax or something and other than that it just sits there and it works and it's fine not so much with the type checker and not really because of, I mean, for a long time it was because of bugs, but like anytime we're adding any kind of new feature or like new support for something, almost always the type checker has to get changed. And the parser change might be trivial, but the, the type checker change just seems to like 
there's just a lot of implications to changing stuff in there. They're both pretty solid for me. Like they don't change much. And like when I'm I'm talking about bugs in the in the type system for Gleam, but it's mostly not. It's normally bugs in like the tooling that surrounds the type checker. Like it invokes in a funny way. Like the most recent one, which was the hardest to find, was we had a bug where in very very rare non-deterministic cases, it would just merge two type variables. Ooh. So you'd have two completely unrelated <laughs> things in two different oh, that's, places that's in the rough. program. Yeah. go, yep, they're the same now. And you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's going to be painful to track down, I bet. Yeah. If you run it again, it wouldn't, it wouldn't do the same thing. Oh, like, it's even worse. <laughs> the time. It was really hard to find. But it was, it was to do with, you know, we've got incremental comp- compilation and we, like, we turn all the type information into a binary and then we write it to disk. And the next time you run the program, we read all this stuff. And there was just an integer that was being reset to zero somewhere where it's not meant to. So, like... The whole time space would like get shifted back and overlay onto each other, which is fine most of the time. But in very rare occasions, you'd get like two two type variables with a number that lined up, and that number's how we tell they're unique. So that Got sucked. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the time system worked fine, but this little decoder thing, yeah, that that wasn't fun. Yeah. Speaking of surrounding tooling, so the project I'm working on right now for Rock is bindings generation. So it's where, <laughs> and the, the further I get into this project, the more I realize how ludicrous it was to think that this could be done by hand but basically it's like you take your rock program and so like in a rock platform you have like a mix of low level code like written in some non-rock language and then rock code that wraps it in like a nice api and then that way application programmers can just write rock code and not have to deal with any other language but if you're building the platform you actually do need to talk between rock and whatever the you know lower level thing that's implementing all your effects and stuff is and so for all the examples that have been written up to this point it's always been like oh, you just write those things by hand. And I'd had an experience of like trying to do those bindings by hand with like recursive data structures, which is like a pretty common thing. If you're like, you know, behind the scenes, you want to have like, I don't know, any, any kind of like visual thing, for example, like I was doing like some native desktop apps, you know, like a recursive like element structure. It was just really, really hard to get the bindings right. And the feedback you would get was also really bad because it would be like, oh, segmentation fault. You know, it's like, okay, well, I got something wrong, but like, what, what did I get wrong? Where? And so this bindings generator is basically like, okay, give me your rock program and tell me what you want the output format to be. In this case, I'm doing Rust first, but in the future, it seems like C, C++, SIG. Somebody's already asked about C Sharp. The point is to write something generic so that anyone can write their own bindings generator without having to like do all of it some scratch. They basically just like get a data structure that's like, here's a description of all the rock types and all the info you'd need to generate bindings and go nuts, you know, just give me a string, <laughs> turn that into a string and then I'll, I'll, you know, put that on the disk. But so I'm doing the Rust one and it's like all these things that I just, I just keep remembering like, oh yeah, like this thing like has an edge case here. Oh yeah, there's like a little thing here. Like the thing I just remembered was like, and I, I like wrote tests where it like generates the bindings and like from the rock code and like runs the rock program and like the rock program just like runs a bunch of assertions. <laughs> so it sees if like things actually worked right. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about like reference counting. Whoops. Once you hand the thing over, you actually need to like have the Rust code do the reference counting because like the rock program is not running anymore. It's now in Rustland. So like that doesn't just happen. You have to like actually remember to, you know, <laughs> tell Rust how to do that. Can you use the Rust reference counter types or do you need to like have your own? Uh, we have our own. Uh, short answer is like, we, we can't quite you just use like Rust's RC, but uh, it's, it's not very hard. It's just like only a little bit of code. It's just like, I didn't remember to generate it, you know? <laughs> so that would have just been like memory leaks. Or in this case, it was a double free because I just wasn't checking the reference count. And so it was just every time it was getting deallocated, it was trying to just free the memory. And so it was like, oh, you cloned this thing. So since it didn't bump the reference count, it'll check for that on 
<laughs> when it when it gets dropped, it was uh, double freeing it. Sounds really fun though. I'm quite, I'm quite jealous. I, I really want to make Gleam native. I know it's going to be like another four, like four years like yours to, to get to the point where it's useful. And I've got so many other things to make. <laughs> well, it sounds like from a design perspective, you're set up to be able to do that, right? Because I mean, if you can, if you can do JavaScript and Erlang VM, I mean, sky's the limit, right? Those are so different. It really feels like we could do it. And that's why I'm so tempted. I'm like, oh, I can, I can just like steal this from this language and this from this language. And I should probably read Rock and see how that works at some point. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's the whole code base is in Rust, so that that part should be familiar. I'm never sure if that's a benefit or not. <laughs> I, <laughs> well, also, like, I mean, we do a lot of weird stuff for performance reasons. Like, we use a lot of like structive arrays stuff. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, I don't think I am. It's a technique that is mostly used in game programming, but it turns out to be really, really useful in compiler development. Andrew Kelly, who made Zig, just gave a talk about it at uh, Handmade Seattle last year. It's like really cool um, about how he sped up the Zig compiler using this, and we basically like watched that talk and like <laughs> did the same kinds of things. So the basic idea is that, so it's like struct of arrays versus array of structs. So the typical way that you'll organize, I don't know, let's say, um, I'm trying to think of something that's not a tree because that's a sort of different can of worms. But let's say you just have, you have a bunch of structures in memory and each struct is in Rust. This will just be like memory offsets. You have some chunk of like, I don't know, 32 bytes and like the first four bytes are an integer and the next eight bytes are a, I've already gotten alignment wrong, whatever. First eight bytes are something, next four bytes are are something else. And if you're iterating through that, and let's say you're iterating through that and you're only like in your loop, you're like, I only care about, you know, this one field or these two fields. Well, in memory, you have these like this whole 32 byte chunk and that's half a cache line, a cache line being like 64 bytes typically. When you're going through all of that, like loading all of those, 32 byte chunks and 32 is pretty small. Like usually you have, have like a bigger struct than that. Basically the bottleneck becomes just loading the memory from the main memory into the CPU cache. If instead you organize it, you flip it around, you say, I'm not going to have an array of structs, which is the typical way people do it for ergonomics reasons, but rather I'm going to have <laughs> a, a struct of arrays. In other words, I'm going to have like, let's say there were five fields in that struct. I'm just going to have five arrays and each array is like one field after another in whatever each of these structs is. And then you just say like, okay, I want index five. And so instead of saying like, I'm going to go look up whatever this field is in my array and in my struct that's in this array, you're going to say, I'm going to go look up for this array of fields, whatever the index is of my thing. So the upshot of this is that when you're iterating, especially if you're just looking at one field at a time and you're iterating over something and that's all you care about, it's super fast because they're all very densely packed. There's none of this extraneous junk you don't care about. So it just like can just burn through it. Similarly, if you've got two, well, okay, you do have like two different arrays to access, but in terms of like loading things into cache, like you're still doing pretty well compared to all this other extraneous stuff. So basically we have been increasingly migrating more and more parts of the rock compiler to use that so you see a lot of like weird looking data structures that are like that have like this index type in there and like like, what is that then it's it's for for that and like the performance difference like measurably is is definitely improved from doing that that's actually been like one of the most we've tried a bunch of different performance optimization techniques including that one and then also including just like little stuff the ones that have been most impactful in terms of the numbers have been that like changing the data structures around and then also SIMD, like using SIMD for parsing stuff more, 
we haven't figured out a way to use SIMD in the um, <laughs> type checker, but maybe something will come up. I don't know. Does that have a huge impact given that you're then throwing loads of stuff at LLVM? Like you spend most of your time in LLVM. So there's two ways you can build your rock program. One is with the dash dash optimize flag, and then the other is without. The goal is to get it so that if you're not using the optimize flag, we don't use LLVM at all. So we actually do our own linking too. We have this like surgical linker, which is a, a whole can of worms to talk about. But basically, if we're doing like non-surgical linking the goal is actually to do surgical linking for everything we just we don't have it doesn't support everything yet it works on linux and that's the default but the mac os one is still a work in progress and we haven't even started on it for windows yet with linking out of the picture yeah llvm just dominates and so for optimized builds that's just how it's going to be but for development builds we go straight to machine code and it's really fast that's what you care about right most of the time you know how often do you actually do a release build so rarely it's a little matters in the sense of like if you're doing performance optimization specifically then like yeah you always want to build with the release but like it's going to be painful <laughs> i unfortunately i don't know way around it like lvm's kind of like like it's to try to build a comparable optimizer to lvm that runs faster would be a much bigger project than like all of rock <laughs> so it's not it's not realistic i stumbled across that technique when i was i did some work for a rust video game studio which is really interesting you just see like really different ways of writing programs that you don't see if you're like a sort of webby person. This is like a st- structure of arrays. Yeah, yeah, that stuff. And then, and then I've been trying to work out. You know, I've been in the back of my head trying to work out how I'd incorporate the compiler without letting myself do it. So much of Glean development is like me just saying no to myself when I want to when I want to add something. And I think that's why we've managed to get so far. Yeah, wh- why we've managed to get so far with with you know so little time really, and, and mostly just me and a bunch of volunteers. I will say, if you do decide to go compiling to native you can save yourself a ton of time if you don't monomorphize so rock compiler monomorphizes and that has i mean it's great for performance but it adds a lot of complexity and also makes builds take longer by default especially like not just in terms of the implementation of the monomorphization which is actually not that complicated but in terms of the implications of that like like what comes out the other side always being monomorphic and then like what if you want to interact with that like just one example when we do like the, in the rock REPL, we don't have an interpreter for that. We actually have like it just compiles and runs your actual machine code. But then like, OK, we ran the machine code. We got the answer. How do we turn that back into a string to display it for the user? So what we have to do is basically at a baseline, we have to traverse the data structure like we have these blob of bytes in memory. And we're like, OK, we got to got to print that out for you. How do we know which bytes are where? Like you have this record, like how do we know, you know which bytes correspond to which fields in the record? So the answer is we keep around the monomorphized data structure that's like, here's what what we use to generate this code. And we just traverse it again. And we're like, oh, I see this was a you know monomorphized record. Here's where the fields were. OK, so that means the first one is here. But and maybe this is a mistake in hindsight, but I actually think we should go even further in this direction. So probably not. But like we discard some information. Like once we're monomorphizing, we don't keep around the the record field names anymore because the binary doesn't care. But the REPL cares. So we actually traverse at the same time the monomorphized structure and the pre-monomorphized structure in order to get all the like names of like record fields and tag names and stuff. And then just do that, traverse both of those, and then also traverse the bytes at the same time, and then just go along like, okay, it was this value, so translate that into a string and blah, blah, blah. So all of that would have been way easier if we didn't have the like monomorphization step. <laughs> and that's just like one example. There's plenty of things like that that come up. Yeah, we've got a literally exactly the same problem in Gleam. If you, tr- if you print a record in on the Erlang backend, you just don't get the field names. 
because they, they don't exist. At, you know, it's just it's just a an Erlang record, which is just syntactic sugar for a, for a tuple that doesn't do anything at doesn't do anything at runtime, doesn't exist. But if you print it on JavaScript, well, there isn't a, a keyless data structure, right? Like you have to use objects. So it's like, okay, well, labels just come for free. One of these weird places in which JavaScript is better than <laughs> than Erlang in this way, or at least more convenient. Yeah. Well, I think you know, so Gleam isn't trying to be. It's trying to be fast. You know, we're trying to be at least as we're trying to match Erlang's performance, which, on the scheme of things, is fast. That's probably faster than most. If you're a web app in Erlang or Gleam, it's probably going to be faster than your average web app in in the world. But we're not trying to do. Um, you know, we're not trying to rival rock we're not going to we're not going to try and rival rust and all these sort of things we're much more focusing on like convenience we really want people to be able to just arrive at the language and read a little bit and like oh you're suddenly writing programs and possibly programs that would be too difficult to write in other languages that's the goal so convenience pretty good i like a bit of convenience yeah <laughs> it also helps with like you know being further along sooner like there's like we have these high ambitions for rock but like they definitely come at a time cost and like there's a reason we don't have like an 0.1 release yet. <laughs> like it's because like doing all this other stuff takes a lot of time. That suits me well. Like I'm happy to do that, but I, I'm like aware, definitely aware of the cost. <laughs> There's all sorts of interesting sort of financial implications of it as well. So like Gleam, I don't have any backing for anyone really. It's just me working for a bit and then I stop and then I continue. And then GitHub came up with GitHub sponsors and they and that's given me a real way to sort of uh, make some money from, which is which is pretty cool. But to get people excited by that. It has to be, it's really clear why you'd want to use Rock. Like it's quite different in a lot of ways. Or Gleam is like, it's another garbage collected functional programming language. Like there's loads of stuff in it that's good, but like it's much less clear why you'd go for it. So we need to get to the point where people are using it and we can actually demonstrate value of it really quickly because the theoretical value is much lower. It's all, it's all the details in the implementation and what the user experience is going to be like. And I can't just write on a web page, the user experience is going to be really good. Give me money. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so like demos and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, taking the approach of trying to get things done quickly and usefully, but maybe not as amazingly as we would have done if we spent a lot more time on it, means we've got a compiler and a pretty good type check and pretty good error messages and the formatter and two code backends and a package manager and a build tool and a language server. If you look for sort of like some of the more fancy features, the features that you probably don't use every day, a lot of them are missing, but like for the ones that you use 95% of the time, they're all there and that's really cool. And like... A 95% IDE experience is so much more useful than a 0% IDE experience. Totally. That's awesome. As with all things in software, there's trade-offs to everything. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> But it, yeah, it sounds like you've managed to find a good set of trade-offs that works for you. That's awesome. Yeah, it's this startup language. How much, how, much, <laughs> how much can we avoid doing? Right. Nice. Anything else we should make sure to talk about? Oh, I don't know. Before we wrap up? I feel like people just expect us to talk about compilers and rock and gleam and we've rambled about that quite a lot we, we did yeah <laughs> <laughs> cool i also think there's plenty of other stuff we could ramble on about i mean even just on like package managers alone so uh yeah maybe we should do another episode in the future but yeah this was fun thanks so much for coming on the program yeah it was fun thank you and yeah i'm, I'm totally up for more rambling in future awesome <laughs> all right well I'll look forward to that see you next time see ya